Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Li Zhao from NYU Langone Health talking about ureteral reconstruction. I'm Li Zhao, I'm a social professor of urology and plastic surgery at NYU Langone. And uh, I'm going to be speaking today about ureteral reconstruction. I have no uh, relevant disclosures. And so I think the one thing that I was honored to be a part of was uh, the uh, AUA guidelines on the on reconstructions. And uh, I really take what I learned from that process of doing urethral reconstruction to apply to a process of ureter. Um, so for urethral reconstruction, we identify the location of stricture by endoscopy, and then we just really make a large movement to allow passive urine using flaps and grafts for uh, tissue substitution. And, you know, we find that, you know, if the ureter is a tube and the urethra is a tube, really why not apply flaccid grafts to the ureter if we do it so well for the urethra? And so what I'm proposing is really a new paradigm for reconstruction of the ureter, uh, in which we're, well, for precise localization of the stricture with really minimal ureteral dissection to preserve blood supply or as low as uh, reasonably achievable. Um, I try to avoid transecting the ureter uh, unless it's necessary. And then you use grass and flaps to restore the ureteral lumen. The way that we are, can do endoscopy um, while also doing reconstruction is I typically um, position my patient in a combined uh, flank and lithotomy position. Um, uh, for patients with a penis, uh, you, just, you can just expose the penis out of the field, you just plug the scope, but um, this other position allows for um, access for uh, female patients. Um, in this position, the nephrostomy tube and the ureter are exposed, gets the kidney, the bladder, all from one position. And then I have an algorithm for reconstruction. If the location structure is um, pretty close to two ends. So um, close to the kidney, close to the bladder, or essentially pull the kidney and bladder up or down. If something's short, we do primary anastomosis, um, but very few strictures are really short enough. And I find that many um, that refer to me as either long strictures with a small movement, at which point I do an onlay using buccal mucosa or appendix, or they're long with a short area valve movement in which you do a augmented anastomotic. Um, and I'll show that before. And then if it's really a long area, this new one will do a um, ilo ureter to uh, replace the segment and an auto transplant as the safety uh, for failures. So I'll start from two ends of the ureter and move towards the middle. Um, pyoplasty, very common procedure. Uh, I find that this is really a operation that where the diagnosis is much more important than the technique. Um, the act of 
cutting the yoder and selling it is not very difficult. Uh, but I think where the failures can lie is really figuring out why there is an obstruction. Is it crossing vessels, high insertion UPJ? Is it a proximal restriction? It's really a problem with how the urine is stored, how it's drained. And I try to figure out is, you know, can we reproduce the obstruction using uh, injection of fluid or ureteroscopy so that I really get the diagnosis correct? And so based on these biases, and it's hard to prove because the success rate of ureteral reconstruction is so high, my own preference is to remove the stent before surgery so that the, the obstruction is recreated. Um, I tend to mobilize the renal pelvis more than the ureter, um, just because there's much more mobility in the renal pelvis. Uh, I tend to do a reduction pyoplast to create a nice funnel for the urine to drain. And while dismembered pyoplasty is the most common procedure that most urologists do, um, I will really reserve that if there's a clot for a classic vessel. And I don't always dismember it because I try to figure out what's the diagnosis. So we'll just start with kind of a pretty routine case. Um, things will get more interesting. This is a single port uh, pyoplasty in uh, a pediatric patient, so uh, about age five. Uh, we place a, a single port trocar at uh, the level of the uh, ASIS. And then, um, so really you're dissecting, you can see the kidney, well, you're following the axis of the ureter here. And then we elevate the ureteral pelvic junction, cutting. And so this is one where, you know, there really isn't a crossing vessel and you're, it's kind of hard to tell like what is, what is the issue, except for you know that when you open up the UPJ, you kind of see a pop open. And for that reason, I thought, well, I probably made the right diagnosis. Um, I don't always dismember for this, but in this case, I did because you can see the part of the ureter that I'm pulling. I always need a little handle uh, pull on. Um, I'm using that to reduce the renal pelvis. And then uh, for stent placement, this is a, a single port operation, so I don't really have a system port. Um, I just did a percutaneously through the skin. Um, using an angio cap, and then I fill the bladder with methane fluid to make sure that distal end of the uh, stent uh, is in the bladder. And then the rest of it is really just um, sewing together. So um, pretty standard pyoplasty. Uh, it's a, uh, again, the key is making the right diagnosis. And once you see the closure, um, here is, uh, the, a nice cosmetic incision underneath the uh, umbilicus here, um, about uh, 2.5 centimeters away. So, um, so I mentioned, uh, I don't always transect the ureter of pyoplasties and that it's really important to figure out the exact diagnosis. So, so here is a patient with a duplicate system, uh, obstruction of the lower moiety, um, and then you can see here that um, I've opened up the renal pelvis low moiety. There was actually stone here, um, and uh, we did endoscopy to look for the location of the stone, and, and there wasn't anything. Um, the white light the scope looks green under near infrared fluorescence. That was green there, and so this is a case where I think 
you could have done a uh, dismember pyroplasty, but you would have had to mobilize the ureter of the upper moiety quite a bit to get there. And uh, I wanted to minimize damage to the unaffected moiety. And so what we did essentially is a kind of a VY advancement. So uh, we joined the two back walls of the upper moiety and lower moiety together uh, here. You can see that suturing the back walls together. And then once that's together, then we essentially create a new wider anastomosis um, junction of both upper and lower moiety. Here. So you can see that closing. And you know, you could do running stitches or, or um, uh, interrupted. I didn't interrupt it here because I wasn't quite sure how it was going to come together. So see here, you can see that switching together. So um, I think not a common case, but just a nice example where uh, you don't really have to you do the same dogma every time. It's really important to try to figure out what was the actual problem. Here's the post-operative ultrasound. So another case, um, patient with a previous cystectomy. So the ureters already been transected um, and they developed a UPJ and I didn't really want to transect the ureter again. Um, so this is where again, the diagnosis is key. So we drove a ureter scope uh, retrograde from through the conduit up and you actually got see where the kink is through the ureter scope. And I just put a stitch on the periurethral tissue and pulled it up and all of a sudden, um, it doesn't look like there's a blockage anymore. And, you know, we injected some, this patient had a nephrosome tube, we injected some fluid through that, it went down right away. And the post-op ultrasound was, uh, uh, was, didn't show any hydronephrosis, there was some hydrourine reflux from the, uh, from the conduit. So just, and then, you know, another challenging case for um, pyroplasty, like I said, it's always the diagnosis challenge. It's not really the operate. Um, here's a case, single port again, um, bringing it in. This patient had a pyroplasty when they were in infancy. Uh, now um, they're uh, uh, an adult and has flank pain, um, evidence of obstruction, but good uh, renal, split renal function. Um, here I do a scope and, and it actually looks wide open. And so I said like, well, it's clearly not draining. There's pain, there's evidence of obstruction on a renal scan um, in a functional kidney. Maybe it's a crossing vessel, see this vessel. But then when we dissect out the renal pelvis, it doesn't look like there's a place to move the ureter. I think this is an excellent case for a renal calicostomy because you're able to uh, create a nice drainage mechanism through the lower pole. Um, now, one thing about ureterocostomy is that essentially you're by amputating the lower pole, there's a significant amount of uh, bleeding that, that can occur. And um, if you're trying to do this with some hemostasis, you know, it's always nice to do this when the parenchyma is thin. Um, but what I do is I run a stitch between the renal capsule and the mucosa of the renal pelvis. And really, um, that compresses the parenchyma uh, that's in between. Um, and that really allows for nice hemostasis while you're burning the mucosa as well. Uh, and so now I have a good place to sew it to. 
Uh, we closed the original um, UPJ, uh, which uh, had been previously done as a pile plasty in the infancy. Um, and then we dissect out the ureter. Um, you need to do a pretty wide spatulation in this case um, to be able to have the, uh, otherwise you get a mismatch between the lower pole calyx and uh, the ureter. So uh, I usually use um, absorbable barb suture uh, in many of this. I actually do some of this with a cutting needle just flies through the ureter very well. Um, and then it's just a matter of sewing the two edge together. Um, if I have access to the bladder, I will frequently do a, a cystoscopy, as you can see here, um, to visualize the distal under the stent. And I'll actually pull the stent up to try to reduce any irritation of the trigone, uh, since uh, stent colic is something that's pretty common among patients postoperatively. So that's one of the order. Let's talk about the other uh, end. Um, so ureteral re reimplantation is a very old operation. And um, a couple of times, the one thing I wanted to make it a little better is, is there something we could do to preserve the blood supply, avoid transecting the ureter, and make it so you don't dissect it circumferentially. And so uh, we're describing a side-to-side non-transected technique. Um, it could be difficult to perform if you need to resect the ureter for a tumor or the uterus in the way, but it's a, it's a way where you don't really have to uh, elevate the ureter posteriorly uh, from uh, uh, where a lot of this blood supply is coming from. You don't have to cut the ureter. Instead, you just drop the bladder onto it. So here is, um, we open up the bladder, you know, put some stitches in to, to identify it. Um, and then we have the bladder nice and open. The ureter just made a uh, incision uh, right above the stricture, or you incise it onto the stricture. And essentially you're doing a onlay of the bladder uh, onto the ureter. Uh, another way you think about it is you're marsupializing the um, ureter into the bladder. Uh, and then it's just a matter of putting stitches in. Uh, if there's a little bit of uh, tension, what you can do is you could dissect into the space of Renzius and drop the bladder further down onto the, uh, onto the ureter to really make it take off tension. Um, the bladder has a much better blood supply than the ureter. And so I tend to mobilize the bladder to the ureter as opposed to the other way around. Um, and uh, this is, I find this very, very helpful for patients who have radiation, where you're really worried about the renal blood supply um, or um, the ureter may be fibrosed uh, to the uh, iliac vessel just underneath it. So there's place with the stent, and then it's just a matter of closing the two sides. Um, I use a double arm uh, barb suture here. You can see this on a cutting needle, and it's really just one stitch um, going up and down, up and down uh, until uh, you've closed the entire anastomosis. Uh, if there's any questions, you can always make the ureterotomy a little bit longer, make the cystotomy a little bit longer uh, until you get into a watertight anastomosis. This is clearly a refluxing anastomosis, but uh, that doesn't seem to be much of an issue um, in adult patients who don't have a history of polynephritis. This is what the, it looks like afterwards. That is the new ureteral orifice. 
And because I haven't transected it, the old renal orifice is right there. So uh, you can see, uh, and if it, you need to treat people for a kidney stone or something, it's actually quite easy to find the neo neoureteral uh, cystotomy. You can see you put the wire in the old ureter and it goes right into the, uh, the new anastomosis. Um, and so you know, it makes it pretty easy. Here's the ureteroscope looking at the native ureteral orifice. You can see there's a stricture there that we've bypassed with this particular reconstruction. And then you just go right up to the thumb, follow the course of the ureter, and then here you are going into um, the ureter there that's been constructed. So, um, so putting this together, you, know, you could do a Borari flap uh, without transecting the ureter as well. Uh, so this is a patient, cervical cancer, um, distal uh, ureteral uh, stricture, um, and uh, I injected some ICG uh, into the urine to identify it. I filled the bladder up with uh, air in this case to uh, such that uh, there's no leakage fluid. And then it's really just a matter of putting the posterior wall of the bladder to, to the medial wall of the ureter. And then again, some barbed suture to close it. Uh, here's the anterior wall. I use the same stitches I use for the other uh, reconstruction I've sewn, just a, um, a barb suture of a cutting needle for the ureter there. And it's just a matter of closing up the Borari flap. Again, didn't have to really dissect the ureter all the way down to the pelvis where it had to radiate it, essentially just open it up approximately the anastomosis to a Borari flap. So, um, so those are the two ends of the ureter. Uh, now we get into some of the more exciting cases. Um, so buccal mucosa graft is really the ideal substitute for urethral reconstruction. It's become the gold standard over the past 25 years. Very easy to harvest, very easy to handle, great survival. And so we now use this for urethral reconstruction. Um, you can see that Dr. Maureen Macklin was published on this in 1996. Well, in 1999, uh, Professor Johan Nade uh, from South Africa reported on the use of buccal mucosa for ureteral reconstruction. Um, and six cases uh, really harms the buckle. You can see the imaging here, uh, but you wrap the, um, it in omentum, uh, put over a stent. Um, and this is Professor Nade in 2014 speaking about it. This video is actually available at the ISIU website. So it's a great talk. Um, so we uh, did this uh, uh, with the robotic technique at NYU uh, starting in uh, 2013. This is our first publication. Uh, four patients all performed as an onlay. There's one who had a uh, augmented anastomotic. Um, and we found it to be quite useful. So here's a case where um, I want to illustrate how we put all these principles together. So seven-year-old gentleman uh, underwent a laparoscopic sigmoid resection, history of prostate cancer. Um, Post-operatively had a ureteral injury, a hydronephrosis, abscess. Um, he needs chemotherapy. Um, he's, uh, uh, and, um, you know, there's a piece of left ureter inspected. So you, you know that some part of the ureter is gone. This is what it looks like on uh, antigrade and retrograde. You can see that essentially the ureter disappears from just past the renal pelvis. And uh, in retrograde imaging, you see that it disappears uh, um, 
really there, there must be a stricture caused by the uh, prostate cancer. And so is this patient missing the, that entire segment um, or uh, is there two separate strictures? So, uh, well, we know he's got at least a proximal problem and a distal problem. He's also got a fresh colon anastomosis um, and uh, he's gonna need chemotherapy. Um, certainly the fracking can be done without compromised renal function chemotherapy. Uh, auto transplant, I think, will be pretty challenging and uh, things. Iliorder is just another bowel anastomosis we recovered from this. And it'll be difficult to tunnel it underneath the mesentery of the colon because he just had it mobilized and anastomosed. So going back to this algorithm, um, so I know that there's a short area of bowel movement or at least an area of bowel movement. And so I'm going to try to do an augment anastomotic in some way. Uh, this is the augment, augmented anastomotic renoplasty. Essentially, you just put the back wall together, spatulate on the same side, and then you put a patch on the other side. In this case, both the coast graph. So um, here's, the, here's the case. Um, due to the dissection, there was pus in the area from where the injury was. You can't really tell what is what, but uh, as luck would have, we were able to put a ureteroscope uh, in antigrade fashion down to the frosty track, and then that helped us dissect out the proximal ends of the injured ureter. So you can see that, freeing that up. So, um, so we, we, now we, we have some idea of, you know, we've got a target to uh, anastomose proximal. Um, and I think this would be quite challenging uh, without the use of near-infrared fluorescence guidance. Now let's look at distal. So um, this, we identified distal ureter, uh, free that up, and then you see the bladder here, uh, just medial to that. And we dissect down, it becomes you know, more and more fibrotic. Uh, but I, I see that I can reach the ureter to the bladder here. And so I'm gonna do a side-to-side -side Um With this technique, I know that I've already got a transected ureter proximally. I don't wanna transect it again distally. So um, I'm just gonna open it up on the anterior surface. And then it's a very, simple procedure to drop the bladder right on. So here, barb suture, I haven't even mobilized the ureter circumferentially. And I don't really want to do that either because it's a, uh, um, I, I know there's a transection above. So, uh, and then open up the bladder. And it's really just um, doing a side-to-side uh, anastomosis. But before I finish, I, I remember I got to do a, a proximal uh, anastomosis as well. So um, I sew this up and then um, take a wire, pass the wire up the ureter. Um, in this case, it's open distally. We follow it up approximately. And uh, here we go. Um, it's a, uh, uh, um, here's the open end. Uh, and then now um, I free this up just a little bit to get a fresh sewing edge. I don't want to do too much mobilization because it's already the middle part of your I want to keep intact. So, so here is the proximal end. And, you know, there's a pretty big gap. And uh, um, so I'm going to mobilize the upper pole of the kidney. And uh, um, it's a, uh, and then I'm going to taxi it down to the um, psoas here. 
uh, just to get a little bit less distance. Now I spatulate it on the same side and here's the back wall being put together as a augmented anastomotic. So um, I've, I need to put a stent across this whole thing. So uh, put the wire up, go through the bladder, get it up here, um, put a stent across both anastomoses, um, putting the, the back wall there. Got probably about three and a half centimeter defect there, that uh, bridge. So it's gonna take some bucket mucosa, um, put it right there, do it as an onlay. Um, you could do this really um, on the, you know, dorsally or ventrally, but I just find that it's a lot easier to sew um, than done this way. Uh, so, uh, and here it is, get her. So, and then when you ever have a graft, you really got to um, back it or something. So um, I typically use momentum for uh, cases in the proximal ureter. Here's the momentum quoted on, there's the ureter, and that's the, uh, and I just wrap the anastomosis with some um, perivescular fat as well. Okay, so set that together. And this is what um, it looks like. You see the imaging um, postoperatively. Uh, the buccal mucosa always dilates a little bit, um, but it drains fine. I wouldn't work, uh, I'm not worried about that. Uh, here's a ureoscopic image of what it looks like. You see the graph there. So, um, and then the dilation that you'll see where the buccal graft is, uh, that's actually Dr. Nade did an excellent job with a paper in 1999 demonstrating it, um, what the reconstruction is. And, uh, um, but it always drains right through. So, um, so buccal mucosa ureoplasty, you know, we would do this for um, really strictures that are fibrotic, greater than two centimeters, you don't need to completely mobilize the uh, ureter. You just essentially need to be able to get to the lumen. Um, you do need a back wall though. So um, we don't want to really tubularize the, the buccal graft um, just based on poor data from the refill literature. A one centimeter width is uh, adequate and uh, you essentially just um, close the difficult side and then the easy side. Uh, since we published that first paper, multiple, multiple papers have been published on this technique uh, at multiple centers. Um, and uh, I'll just highlight a couple of ones. Um, this is our paper from um, European Urology of 19 patients, um, up to eight centimeter length uh, with uh, excellent success rate, about 90%. Um, and then this is our uh, most recent follow-up. 54 patients from three institutions, uh, um, Hackensack, Dr. Seifelman, um, and uh, Temple with Dan Yoon. Um, and uh, follow-up of um, two and a half years, a stricture of three centimeters would range from one to eight. Uh, many patients with previous renal reconstruction. Um, you know, there are a few complications that there are with any surgery, but concerning that, you know, the length of say was one day, close to 90% success rate. I think this is an excellent um, option. Um, so another operation that we do is the uh, appendix reconstruction. Uh, so um, this is perfectly on the right side. Here's our recent publication um, showing uh, use of it as either an onlay or in a position for strictures that were six and a half centimeters uh, in average. Uh, with excellent success rates. 
Um, although you do have to worry about um, that there is, you can have obliteration. So here's one where I dissected out the appendix and then realized that the is completely closed. So you always need something as a backup. So, so here's a case, um, patient with uh, prior cystectomy and radiation, um, prior left-sided ureteral stricture that was fixed, now with a very long segment, right-sided um, ureteral stricture. Um, also have some renal insufficiency and um, uh, due to prior bowel resection, some evidence of short gut. So really not a whole lot of options, uh, the setting. Um, you can see how fibrosed everything is uh, right over the great vessels. Um, you know, it's a, uh, so opened up the ureter on the uh, anterior surface. I didn't want to do a circumferential mobilization there. I, I knew the blood supply was going to be great. Um, and, uh, but fortunately this patient had an excellent appendix that was right next to it. So um, you could do a purse string suture to isolate it or uh, staple. Uh, here it is with the, the sacrum. Um, and then the appendix here I used as an onlay. Um, uh, you do have to get some of the fecal uh, lifts out of it. Um, and then you just essentially open up the anti-mesenteric side of the appendix. Uh, it doesn't really matter uh, which way the appendix peristalsis, um, especially if you're doing it as an onlay. Um, and uh, it's just a matter of uh, open all the way. And, and then you essentially pin the cecum near your reconstruction so that it's not any tension. And here is the uh, anastomosis, um, side of ureter, side of the appendix, uh, running suture. Um, I used a, uh, a barbed uh, stratifix in this case. Um, I don't think it matters very much, but uh, I just like the barbed suture because it, it holds tension. It's, uh, a little bit potentially less work in my uh, in my hands, and so here is uh, the placement of the uh, stitches. Just essentially running it uh, one side, we place the stent through the conduit, um, and then uh, here is closing the um, easy side, if you will. <laughs> the side is a little bit um, it's going to be easier to see. The back wall is already been sutured. And then just bring it all the way up. In this case, divide it up to the uh, junction of the uh, conduit because there's a, a long stretch right there. See that here? Suture together. Um, nice uh, wire tight So another case, um, patient prior Whipple, prior um, ureteral license. So you can see how it's yours and medialized. A lot of fibrosis, kind of hard to tell where things are, but um, the flexible ureter scope really helps. So uh, go through there. And uh, um, I didn't want to grab the ureter and, and often place holding stitches there, but sometimes I, I don't really put the holding stitch all the way through, I just use the needle to retract. Um, and, and it works uh, pretty well. Um, it's kind of like a gelpy retractor. Uh, so here I cut the ureter. And again, it's, it's nice not having a stent because 
um, I know right there that I've gotten through the stricture, right? The fluid rushes out because the patient had a nephrostomy. Um, and this, so, and then when we pulled the appendix up, I give some ICG. Uh, and so here you can see the um, vessels there. We transect the base of the appendix, uh, confirm that there's no good blood supply. And then we just opened up the anti-mesenteric side. Um, in this case, actually, the stricture was not that long. Um, I didn't want to do a UU because I assumed that this would have to be an ischemic stricture to the previous renal lysis. Um, and so I wanted to do a onlay, but I really have too much appendix. The problem is that the blood supply is coming from the base of the appendix, uh, but I don't need it. So what I did was I de-epithelialized, so remove all the mucosa portion uh, of the appendix while preserving the blood flow that's right on the back. Um, and then it's just a matter of closing one to the other. Uh, but I didn't want to cut the appendix short because that would have been on tension. And so here, the closure, you can look on the scan, you know, uh, resolution of hydronephrosis, appendix flap right there. This is what the ureteroscopy looks like. See this, it's a little bit outcoached, appendix flap. Um, some other kind of advanced cases. Um, so bilateral reconstruction, radiated patient, uh, some degree of renal insufficiency, um, infections from chronic uh, nephrostomy tubes. Um, so, you know, pretty fibrotic here. Um, and, uh, uh, but uh, just as with other cases, the help of the uh, endoscopic view really tells me where the stricture begins. And I open this up, and here it is. Two strictures, about seven centimeters bilaterally, radiated bladder. Um, don't really want to use valve. So let's, uh, we'll do the appendix on one side. Uh, and so um, staple off the appendix, um, dissect the, this open everything up, and realize that the appendix is a little bit too short. Um, it's, uh, and so uh, the good news is, um, while I don't want to mobilize the entire bladder, I can still do a side-to-side non-transecting renal reimplant distally to make up the gap. And so here, as you can see, the bladder being pulled down. Um, and I do half the anastomosis here. I knew I'm, I know I'm not going to be able to get all the way up the urine uh, on this side because it's a, a seven centimeter stricture, but I could get maybe three centimeters here. And then um, what I could do is I could use the appendix to make up the rest. And so here's the appendix being sutured on to the proximal end of the right side. Um, similarly, it's double arm bilateral stricture, uh, bilateral um, anastomosis here. You can see just pulling the appendix down, down, down. And uh, once we get to a certain point, otherwise the appendix is going to be on some tension. So I release the mesentery. We do this with neobladders as well, right? Cutting the pericardial with mesentery. And also I drop the bladder a little bit, see if I can get the side to side just a little bit higher. Um, and again, you know, I wanted to minimize the mobilization of the order in this particular case, because uh, the case the patient had radiation. Um, so that's the right side. Now, what do we do about the left? 
same length, no appendix over there. Well, uh, essentially the same operation, except for we do an onlay uh, using uh, buccal mucosa. So um, we'll open up the bladder on the back and start doing the side to side. Um, just keep pulling it up. You drop the bladder off the space of Retzius, get it a little bit closer. In this case, I, I actually didn't open up the mucosa until I put my first anastomotic stitches in. Say, uh, just a trick that will really allow us to see the, um, the anastomosis very well. And then we pull the bladder down. And I still got like a six centimeter gap in the ureter there uh, with the work that I do. So then it's a really just pulling the, putting the graft on and sewing it. Um, so ventral onlay of buccal mucosa connected to uh, a side-to-side non-transecting uterine plant. Here you see that buckle all the way down, um, place a stent. And then uh, we have to support the buckle of something. As it happens, uh, I didn't show it, but this patient didn't have a lot of momentum that could go down, but it had a lot of nice mesenteric fat right off the sigmoid that was right next to it. And so uh, we quoted that into the graft, uh, here you can see that. And then we put the sigmoid um, right over it, uh, multiple layers, things, nice wire-type metaphosis. Uh, I pinned the sigmoid here to the left side again, uh, just to really seal that off. Um, and then here's the bilateral um, sonograms of spatial thread, but nephroscopy to dependent free um, previously. Um, now, there are some cases, I've shown a lot of techniques where I do creative things, um, where I don't use valve, uh, but sometimes you just have to do it. So, another radiant patient, um, uh, previous surgery, radiation, you know, very small bladder. Um, and so, I couldn't really mobilize it up. And, uh, but, uh, I knew that I needed to augment the bladder anyway. So here is an opening to the bladder. I fill it with air so I don't have any leakage. And then the first move I do for aleo ureters actually is to fix it to the bladder below, um, even prior division of the bowel. Uh, that way I have um, a nice starting point to march the ureters. So I do essentially half of the bladder anastomosis. Now I know the bowel is fixed. This is very similar to how I do neo, um, intracoral neobladders. I fix the urethra first and then isolate the bowel afterwards. And so here we open the ureter. Again, the non-transecting approach. Um, don't need to dissect all the way around. It's a radiated patient. I don't want to cause any kind of injury. I can tell exactly where the ureter is because I've injected uh, endocytic green into it. Um, and then it's a matter of isolating the bowel. I know where things to be because I've already fixed it on the bladder. I just need to get to both sides. Um, I will uh, concede that this technique, which is essentially a U-shaped um, uh, illo-ureter, uh, does result in one of the limbs to be anti-peristaltic. Uh, that being said, uh, I haven't seen any problems in my uh, experience. I, I think, I suspect it's because the limb of the illo-ureter is so big um, that urine will drain through, even though it's uh, anti-peristaltic. Um, so, and then here is the side-to-side 
of the bowel to the ureter, um, done with nastimosis here on the patient's left side. And then we move over, um, uh, divide the bowel on the right, march down the mesentery, um, free things up. And then here I finished it, a bladder anastomosis. I initially did pin it, but now I finish it because this allows me to inflate the bladder and check my anastomosis on one side. I, once I realize that's good, I open up the bowel on the other side. Uh, and then it's another side to side anastomosis here. And we get the um, ureter sutured on to the bowel nicely. Do another check against um, inflation, uh, no leak. And then we have to bring the bowel nasals together. So uh, this is, I like doing uh, this isoperistaltic bowel anastomosis. And so really just line up the, the bowel in the way that it's supposed to be. You put a holding stitch um, there, you open up a common channel, uh, a single fire of the uh, giant 60 uh, down the limb. And then I close the uh, common channel with a, uh, um, in this case, a stratifix and, um, with a limber layer. And here, here's what things look like, no hydro things. So to summarize, renal reconstruction, um, you know, the goal I think is really just wherever you can do to restore open movement. Um, you, you, uh, I try to keep all the viable ureter. I don't burn any bridges, you know, do repair with flaps and grabs. Um, here's just an illustration of things to do. Uh, really, um, if it's close to either end, we'll try to pull the bladder up or the kidney down real pelvis down. Uh, and then if it's long with small lumen, there's various techniques, buckle, close graft, or appendix flap. And with ileo-ureter as the uh, backup and autotransplant for failures of that. Uh, we recently published on this uh, in uh, urologic clinics in North America. Uh, I've demonstrated, you know, new approaches for uh, reimplantation. And then I think this part of algorithm cross-maturation with appendix uh, as my preferred choice on the right side, the buckle graph on the left, where there's no appendix prior to doing this. Um, we've published on this. This is the articles, uh, two separate ones on side to side, and also radiated uh, strictures uh, for appendix. Here's the publication for that. And then uh, three uh, separate publications for uh, buckle graft uh, ureteral reconstruction. And then I'm hopeful that one day we'll get test questions like this, where, uh, you know, one of my residents at NYU saw this and like, hey, there's no right answer. Uh, it should be buckle graft. Um, but, you know, long restriction on the left side, I think it's much likely. Uh, if you put grass with flaps, we'll have a better chance of uh, doing reconstruction in a uh, less morbid way. And uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'll open the, the floor up for questions. I see one question. Uh, when you give ICG through the nephrostic tube for intraoperative ureter, what is your protocol? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, so uh, typically um, it comes in a vial that's about 2.5 milligrams. Uh, you can mix that with about 25 cc's of uh, milliliters of saline. Um, and then um, I typically inject five uh, of that concentration um, 
into the frosting tube. You you do need to give a little bit of flush to get it out of the tubing, uh, but uh, not very. You don't want to create a hydrophonic system or, um, you know, there's been reports of people who have become septic uh, from too much injection. So this is uh, not something we just keep injecting more and more. Uh, just you empty the renal pelvis, and then you give uh, five cc's. And then the key thing is you want to wait. Uh, it could take 15 minutes, uh, 30 minutes for the ICG to peristalsis down the ureter and to infiltrate um, into the uh, renal tissue before you can see it. Um, what suture do I use for reconstruction? Uh, so um, I typically use a absorbable barb suture. Uh, it's a um, uh, it's a stratifix, so it's a uh, it's uh, similar to um, VLOG, but uh, it's a laser etched uh, suture. So I think it um, allows you to pull back a little bit more. Um, it's usually 3.0, but rated as 4.0 for strength. I typically use a double arm stitch on a cutting needle for your renal reconstruction because it's uh, it's only seven centimeters long, so it flies through very quickly. And um, the uh, uh, and um, I don't have to waste time pulling things through. Next question: um, All the examples you gave were robotic. Uh, when do you decide to approach open? Uh, you know, um, uh, you know, it's a, um, uh, I do, I try to do robotic, um, uh, as the first approach, uh, uh, every time I find that I'm, I'm able to uh, do some of these tricks that you've seen here with, um, uh, urethroscopy, ICG things to, uh, um, to tell, to identify where the ureter is. Um, and uh, uh, really the only potential issue is if I can't get access, um, which uh, if you've seen some of the cases, many patients post-surgery, uh, it's very rarely issue. Uh, I, I would say that um, in the past seven years of practice, um, I know of one case where uh, I could not get access when we attempted to do um, uh, robotic, uh, all the other ones. I done a robotic approach. Um, what are your tricks for opening the ureter anteriorly and ensuring that you are sizing the movement? Uh, so you saw some of the video where I put a ureteroscope uh, into the uh, lumen. And so then I'm really just cutting onto the, uh, um, cutting onto the ureteroscope. Um, you've seen other ones where there's a wire there. I kind of think like when I do erythroplasty, if I want to cut into the lumen, I'll put like a bougie dilator there or a flexoscope or a Foley catheter. And so this is really very similar. Um, there are other things I'll do that retract up on the ureter. And so um, you saw one where I just put a, a needle uh, to grab the edge of the ureter and pull up, and then I, I made the incisal movement. Um, I think the other key thing is, um, uh, you really want to have the ureter identified very well. And um, by injecting ICG, by doing ureteroscopy, uh, if you're cutting on the center of the ureter, you're going to get into the lumen instead of skiving off and um, 
those tricks really help you identify what's the center of the earth. certainly welcome to have uh, any of the questions that, uh, that I've seen. Um, so I, I think this is an uh, exciting time to, to uh, be in um, urologic reconstruction. Uh, a lot of the techniques I describe here, uh, they're essentially just um, elaborations of techniques that we would do for urethral reconstruction. And uh, I really think that we should offer some of these newer techniques in lieu of uh, chronic stent changes or living with a frosting tube um, because I, I have found it makes a huge difference in the quality of life. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website urologycovid.ucsf.edu.